Welcome everyone to Litigation Nation. I'm Jack Sanker. Today's stories, market trends among law firms demonstrates a growing gap between the top firms and the best of the rest, leaving other regional, national, even other top firms that aren't at the tippy top in the dust. A 110-year criminal conviction for a runaway truck crash in Colorado spurs a massive wildcat strike among logistics workers that could further stress the supply chain crisis, driving up prices and emptying store shelves for some Americans. And another COVID case out of California, a ruling that further opens the door for COVID tort claims maybe becoming more common. All of that and more, here's what you need to know. According to Anna Sanders of Law 360, the gap between top-end big law firms and, well, everyone else is growing bigger and bigger. Her story published December 15th in Law 360 states that the top 10 law firms with the highest gross revenue accounted for nearly 29% of the $100 billion total revenue generated by the 130 firms that responded to a recent Law 360 poll. Many of these firms work internationally, and according to Jerry Riskin, lawyer and consultant to law firms quoted in the piece, they have modeled themselves after the big accounting firms and consolidating market share at the top. And that tracks with a report from October of 2021 that showed that a record of 115 firm mergers took place in 2019, which did tick down in 2020 to only 67, but was back over 70 as of October of 2021 and is trending in that direction. Much like other sectors of the U.S. economy, the big players are splashing cash to recruit, i.e. poach, top talent from their competitors. And the downstream effects of this are significant for everyone else. Randy Kistner of Decision Set, another consulting group quoted in the piece, says, quote, what we see is less price competition, higher fees, definitely a greater potential for conflicts of interest because you have more clients being serviced by the same firms, unquote. This consolidation is not without risk. Some observers note some firms could potentially be biting off more than they can chew. The merger creation of Dewey and LaBeouf LLP in New York from 2017 comes to mind, where that firm got in big trouble through its compensation commitments used to poach star attorneys from other firms and which ultimately declared bankruptcy in 2012. Still, now, time appears to be good for those at the top, with at least 35 U.S. firms reporting revenue of over $1 billion in the past year. But for consumers, the jury is still out. I think that with the consolidation of the top non-legal companies that we've seen in the past 10 years, Amazon is involved in esports and electric vehicles and AI. Facebook has the largest facial recognition hardware capabilities. Google has robots and is in the self-driving car game and everything else, for example. It makes sense for big firms to try themselves to become one-stop shops for everything under the sun. Insofar as these huge multi-industry spanning companies need legal services, it makes some sense for firms to be able to offer services accordingly. And if these megacorps can dominate dozens of separate industries, why shouldn't law firms seek to do the same? The downside of consolidation mentioned in the Law 360 article, which is that these mega firms may have less, quote, cognitive diversity, unquote, is, in my opinion, a thing. Having practiced in boutique, small, mid-sized firms, the approach to solving problems presented by a given case or deal or matter can change based on the resources at your disposal. For example, if you have an army of associates you could throw at a problem, well, that's going to be your go-to solution. 
anytime a client gives something to you. If, however, you have to be mindful of the time spent on one thing, you may be looking for more economical approaches, business solutions, things like that. Likewise, some of the most creative trial lawyers and litigators in the country are plaintiff's lawyers and full disclosure, I primarily practice on the defense side. And plaintiff's lawyers are almost always working with less resources and staff than defense firms. So I'll put it this way. If you work in the industry, you already know, bigger is not necessarily better. This one is interesting for a lot of reasons. In April of 2019, a Colorado truck driver whose brakes were out struck into a lineup of cars stopped in traffic on a highway in Colorado. And without rehashing the entire criminal case, it's not in dispute that his brakes were not working at the time of the accident. The driver, who was employed by a Houston-based trucking company called Castellano 03 Trucking, according to the New York Times, lost control as he approached and slowed traffic. Now, according to prosecutors, he had ample time to pull off into any of the off-ramps or runaway truck ramps prior to reaching the traffic ahead and failed to do so. The driver told investigators after the accident that he lost his brakes when traveling at about 85 miles an hour. Photos and videos, as you can imagine, show a catastrophic collision, and the accident caused a 28-vehicle pileup unfortunately, including four fatalities, severe injuries to six others, minor injuries to dozens more. Last week, he was convicted of four counts of vehicular homicide, which he would have to serve consecutively, amounting to a 110-year sentence due to Colorado's minimum sentencing laws. The long sentence has caused outrage among supporters who contend that his employer should face criminal liability, not the driver. And according to Charlie Barrett of the Lodestar, which is a really great online logistics and trucking publication, by the way, petitions in support of commuting or pardoning the driver have reached more than 4.3 million signatures at the time of recording this episode. The Lodestar quotes the presiding judge, A. Bruce Jones, as saying, quote, if I had the discretion, I would not run these sentences consecutively. I accept and respect what the defendant has said about his lack of intent to hurt people, but he made a series of terrible decisions, reckless decisions, unquote. And importantly, and one of the reasons this story is so interesting, is that a number of truckers and drivers across the state of Colorado have rose up in support of the driver, with photos going viral over the weekend of trucks lined up blocking certain highways. More importantly, many truckers have taken to social media saying that they will boycott deliveries to the state. The hashtag no trucks to Colorado was trending on Twitter for a while over the weekend. Videos with that tag were viewed over 11 million times. One driver in a video posted to social media said he would straight up boycott deliveries to the state unless the sentence were reduced, complaining that first degree murders get less time than the driver in this case. So in this era of activism and protests, the truck drivers have had a lot of leverage, especially in light of all the logistics and shipping issues that this country is dealing with. And I'm not going to say it's because of the boycott, but as of the date of me recording this episode, a Colorado district attorney just moved for a hearing to examine whether the 110-year sentence should stand. This is obviously a tragic story, starting with the death of four innocent people and injuries to numerous others. But the reason I chose to cover it this week is because it highlights the intersections of a lot of political, economic, and social waves that are cresting in this country right now. 
truckers doing their own form of boycott activism in the midst of a national supply chain crisis in reaction to what many people saying is a cruel mandatory minimum sentencing law in Colorado. That's a labor movement, a global trade issue, and a criminal justice concern all balled together in one story, which I think does a good job of illustrating the times we find ourselves in. All right. Now, as I said last episode, I'm really going to do my best to make sure the show isn't focused on COVID. I think we all get plenty of COVID coverage elsewhere these days. But as a litigator, I am going to cover some of the tort suits that are starting to bubble up around the country. And go ahead and check the last episode for my breakdown of a recent ruling in Cook County, Illinois, giving a plaintiff the green light to proceed in a COVID exposure case allegedly contracted on a construction job site. But in that vein, the California Court of Appeals just handed down an interesting decision on December 21st. Seize Candy, a California-based candy company that's owned by Berkshire Hathaway, is involved in a wrongful death lawsuit whereby a Seize employee alleges she contracted COVID in the workplace, then came home, exposed her husband to COVID, who then subsequently died of COVID. The employee of Seize, along with the surviving children, then sued Seize for wrongful death. Seize moved to dismiss pursuant to the exclusive remedy provision of California's Workers' Compensation Act. And for those of you that aren't familiar, the exclusive remedy provision is pretty consistent from state to state where there is a Workers' Compensation Act. Basically, when states have established a work comp system for workplace injuries, an injured worker can only go through that system for compensation and cannot sue their employer in a traditional tort lawsuit. Therefore, their exclusive remedy is the workers' comp system. Basically, it's meant to be a shield to employers to the excess pain and suffering verdicts that are common in many states in exchange for what is supposed to be a quick and equitable compensation for the injured worker. Whether you think that your state's Workers' Compensation Act accomplishes this, I'm sure many lawyers' opinions will differ. Seize argued that their employee's wrongful death claim is barred by the exclusive remedy, and the California court ruled that it does not apply. I'm not going to get too far into the reasoning because that's a matter of interpretation of California state law, and I'm not about to pretend to be an expert in that. However, I will highlight that this ruling is another step in the direction of viable tort claims for exposure to COVID. And in this case, California for now is recognizing a potential secondhand exposure claim. Remember, in this case, the employee came home, gave it to her husband, who later died about a month later. And that's not exactly unheard of. For example, in the asbestos context, there are many cases involving spouses getting exposed by virtue of living with a worker who was exposed to asbestos on the job. And the reasoning seems to be similar to those cases here. And granted, the subject of this appeal didn't seem to address the issues of causation, but it does point to the direction of the court imposing strict duties on employers or job sites or premises owners, even in the early months of the pandemic, since the plaintiff in this case alleges the exposure occurred on or about March 22nd of 2020. So for those of you that want to look this up, it's docket number 20 STCV4973 in the Superior Court of California. We'll be sure to let you know if anything interesting develops going forward. All right, that's the show. 
Remember, you can find us every Tuesday on your favorite podcast service. And as the new year approaches, we're wishing everyone a safe and happy holiday season. Hopefully you're not cramming to meet your billable requirements for the year. But if you are, hang in there. We've all been there. And my advice to you is if you do make a resolution for this new year, for example, to start a podcast, don't wait until the last week of the year to do it. See you next week.